0: What's going on, everybody? Thank you so much for kicking off your week with us. This is your Monday edition of Fantasy MLB Today. We are Sports Ethos presentation, of course, and I'm your host, Joe Orico. You can find me over on Twitter at Joe JoeOrico99 and also at EthosFantasyBB. We are going to be posting so much stuff over there. It's going to make your head spin. Please go and follow for all of our different draft guide updates, different articles, podcasts, news and notes, literally any bit of baseball content we will share over there. But that feed is about to become very, very busy. We're going to have some blurbs over there this year as well, just keeping you guys caught up on some of the biggest news, the most fantasy relevant news. Uh, There's going to be a, Like I said, just a ton of stuff over there for you guys to sink your teeth into. And our draft guide should be out somewhere in the third week of February. That is what we're aiming for. So very excited to share that with you guys. We are going to be doing a team preview today, and it's going to be a solo one. And I know that some of you will see the title of it and not even click onto it if you guys are here course really appreciate that. It's been a great week for the show. Um, just seeing the downloads. A lot of people are coming back to the show, finding it for the first time. Really appreciate all of you guys. Now you might not love this topic, like I said, but we're going to be previewing the Oakland Athletics for the 2024 season. We're previewing every single team. We were going to get to it eventually and we're going to take care of it solo. There's a few teams that I am doing solo. I did the national solo, the Rocky solo, just because I don't I don't need to put that on a guest to come over and talk about You know, an hour spent on the athletics, uh, take time out of their day. I can do that solo. I can take on that burden myself. Now, we do have a ton of team previews this week with guests. Tomorrow, I'm recording a couple of them, another one on Wednesday. We're taking care of the Yankees, the Tigers, and the Mariners this week as well. So it's going to be a lot of team previews uh, from now until Thursday, only team previews. And then Friday's episode is number 500 of the show. And Eno Saris and Nick Pollock are going to stop by. We're going to talk about big differences between our starting pitcher rankings. That will be a lot of fun, but that will be Friday. But this week is jam-packed with a bunch of stuff. This will probably be the most boring show of the week, talking about the Oakland Athletics. There are still some fantasy-relevant players, some guys that I think could be very interesting. But all in all, we all know the Athletics are not going to be you know, a juggernaut real-life or fantasy-wise. But we're going to start getting into it right here with Ryan Noda. Ryan Noda was kind of somebody that took us by surprise a little bit last year. He wasn't an amazing asset or anything, uh, but in a deeper league, and I play in a lot of deeper leagues, 15-teamers, he was somebody that was very viable and very startable. Uh, 16 homers, 63 runs, 54 ribbies. He ended up only bad in two twenty nine. but from where you drafted him, especially if you were in a draft and hold last year and you took him, there were there were weeks where you were starting him pretty happily. He had a one twenty-three WRC+, plus, which is, for those of you who aren't familiar, weighted runs created plus it just gives you an idea of how good the player is overall offensively 23 percent above league average any number you know in a plus stat is 100 is going to be average 123 wrc plus is a really good number he walked at 15.6% of the time, so if you're in an on-base percentage league, Ryan Nota is a really valuable asset. He's a guy that's probably going to be able to maybe not maintain quite that same number, but you know, 13 14% is what he's projected for. And somewhere in like a 330, 340 on-base percentage, that can definitely play. The average does bring you down a little bit, 229 last year, projected for about 210 to 220 this year. He's a big strikeout guy. That's going to hold him back a little bit, specifically in your points leagues as well, where you do have negatives for strikeouts, which is pretty much every single points league. He is going to hold you back there a little bit. 34.3% strikeout rate is incredibly high. He struck out 170 times last year in 128 games. So I don't think that he is an amazing asset by any stretch of the imagination. He's pretty much falling in the same category this year as he did last year. Uh, As somebody that is a draft-and-hold type of player, he's not going to be drafted in your standard leagues But if you're looking for a little bit of depth at the first base position, he's somebody that I think could be pretty interesting. Uh, Depending on your format, could carry outfield eligibility as well. He got into right field seven times, left field twice. He was predominantly a first baseman. But if you are playing on uh, Yahoo, I believe he will have outfield eligibility as well. There are some positives, right? And I think that there will be some weeks even in your shallower leagues where he might be somebody to take a look at streaming if the schedule is nice, if they're playing away from home. That's something that's going to hinder kind of all the athletics players has for a long time it's that their home ballpark is not particularly hitter friendly. But I think if it's a, a good week, like let's say they're going into Colorado or to Cincinnati, something like that, and you have him on a draft and hold team, I think you can pretty confidently start Ryan Nota in a lot of situations, either at the first base spot, utility, as a corner infielder. Um, you know, a lot of people get, and I do this myself a lot of the time, where you kind of forget, like you see a guy's first base eligible and you think, well, I'm not going to be able to put him in at first base, right? Uh, you know, I have Freddie Freeman, I have Pete Alonso, I have whoever. You know, A lot of the time, we do kind of forget that we can squeeze guys in in the utility spot. Uh, it's something that I'm, is a blind spot for me occasionally. You just kind of get zoned in on he's outfield, he's third base, he's whatever you have you know the option to have two great starting first basemen, and sometimes even three, depending on your league settings in your lineup. So don't let that hold you back necessarily on a given week. You should still be able to start Noda, uh, especially in an NFBC 15-team type of league. In your 10s and 12s, it's going to be a little bit trickier, but I could definitely see him still getting like a 20-home run, 5 6 steal season. And in particular leagues... Uh, especially the deeper ones that will be valuable. I just think, you know, he's probably not going to be able to maintain 10 or 12 team viability in that lineup. I don't think a lot of players are just to preface that. I don't think there's a lot of players in this lineup that we are going to be talking about from a 10 team perspective. There might be nobody, honestly, like it's very, very close for a couple of guys where they're probably there. Uh, But for the most part, Oakland athletics players this year and probably for the next couple of years are going to mostly just be deeper league assets Let's move on to Zach Geloff. I've heard Geloff also. I'm not sure if I'm mispronouncing that. I believe it's Zach Geloff, but I've, I've heard it gone both ways. He was pretty incredible last year. 14 homers and 14 steals, 267 batting average, over just 69 games played. That was only 300 plate appearances. He goes 14 and 14. A lot of people have said, like, this is a straight 2020 guy. He's at least 2020. And then, you know, people are doing the kind of quick math of saying, well, he played 70 games last year. He gets into a full season worth of games, and you're getting close to 30-30 from Geloff. I think we have to kind of pump the brakes on that a little bit. You look at what he did in the minor leagues, and you look at what he did so far in the big leagues. It's not, you know, there are players who are sometimes able to translate one-to-one from the minors or even sometimes get better from when they are in the minors up to the major leagues. But to have this kind of a power jump at the major league level is not something that you can probably expect from Zach Geloff. I think you're probably looking at 16 home runs over the course of a full season, 16 or 17 home runs. Uh, if you look at the ISOs that he ran in the minor leagues, the slugging percentages—they're not amazing a lot of the time. They're not bad; like they're they're fine. But I don't think he's going to be a 500 slugging percentage guy in the big leagues. There's not that many people that are. The projections—some of them have him below 400 in terms of a slug. Uh, the Bat X has him at 395. ATC has him for 418. Um, you know. 410, 402, that's what you're generally looking at here, and the projections are about 17, 18 home runs. The steals, he could be a good 20 stolen base guy. Uh, I don't really have a problem there, and I think the batting average can be fine, you know, 240-ish, something like that. The reason why Zach Geloff is causing problems for me is because he's being drafted incredibly high up. Uh, 133 is his ADP over the last month. 110 is the minimum pick, 165 is the maximum to give you a range there. I just can't really get behind it. You know, a lot of those, and I'm using a draft champions ADP right now. I will start, for those of you who are thinking, when is he going to start talking more about Yahoo and ESPN? I'm going to focus predominantly on that for most of the rest of the offseason and the regular season. That will be all we talk about. But their ADP data right now on these sites, CBS, Yahoo, it's still not really up to date yet. There haven't been enough drafts that have been done. So I'm still using the NFBC draft champions ADP here. And Zach Yeloff is being drafted in the top 140 picks, sometimes the top 130 or top 120 picks. For a guy who plays in Oakland, who I think the power is kind of suspect and who also, you know, you're you're paying a premium for what he did last year. You're buying at an all-time high, which is, I know, it's his first time you're actually able to draft him. But the price is ridiculously high. I shouldn't say all-time high because obviously it's his all-time high. In the first year, you're really able to draft him for fantasy. But it is that premium tag that is coming with the fact that he just had a really great season, and everybody is you know, doing what I said. No, he's going to be a 30-30 guy if you just double what he did last year. I think that he had one of those really incredibly lucky runs last season, really great BABIP. He got a lot of home runs where you know, a lot of people have talked about this, that the power is just really not there. If you look at prospect evaluators, what they say about him, they don't think it's legit. The, the projections don't think it's legit. It's a big ballpark to begin with. So I I just think Zach Geloff is probably somebody that you can look at as like a 15 home run to 20 steal type of guy. Probably going to bat in the 240 to 250 range. But where he is currently priced on NFBC, I think, is out of hand. There's no need to be taking him that high in your standard Yahoo leagues, ESPN leagues. There's guys like this who do get pushed up because of the potential for that exponential growth. You know, you see a great rookie season. What can he do in year two? And people kind of dream on that a little bit, a lot on the NFBC, a lot everywhere, but specifically where there are contests, where there's an overall component to it. People kind of dream on that. What can happen here after just this breakout year one or year two, what can happen the subsequent year? And I think we've taken it a little too far with Zach Geloff. I don't think we're going to see him break out to the degree that a lot of people do. Let's move on and talk about Brent Rooker though. Cause he already pretty much did break out last year, 30 home run season and because this lineup is what it is, he only had 69 ribbies and 61 runs scored. But Brent Rooker had himself a great year in his first true run at the big leagues. He'd played 58 games in 2021. He played 16 games in 2022, but this was his first time as a regular full-time player, albeit mostly as a DH, predominantly as a DH, but he's still going to carry outfield eligibility. Uh, 30 home runs, four steals, and a 246 batting average. I think that that's probably pretty close to what he is going to be. Um, You know, maybe the home runs peaked a little bit. Like, you're probably, if you look at the projections, going to get, like, 25 to 27 with a couple of steals and maybe a 240 batting average, 230 as opposed to 246. But I think he's fine. Like, where he's being drafted is after pick 300. 307 is where Brent Rooker's being taken. Again, I don't think that there's much room for massive growth here. The runs and RBIs are going to be kind of capped, and so is the batting average. But if you're looking for a late source of power that will chip in probably a couple of steals, Brent Rooker makes a lot of sense. After pick 300, in a lot of cases, like that's you're, you don't really care so much at that point. If it's a 12-team league, pick 300. That's round 25. If it's a 15-team league, it's like round 20, 21 kind of range. It, it, there's not much he can really do to hurt you there. You're going to drop a lot of these players anyway, and Rooker showed us in his first full year that he's a 30-home run guy. Good walk rate as well at 9.3%. The strikeouts are a little bit much, but that's kind of, you know, gonna be par for the course with a lot of power hitters. It doesn't make me not want to draft Brent Rooker. The price is right. You know, it's what it comes down to with most players. You know, I like Zach Geloff a lot more than I like Brent Rooker as a fantasy asset. But I'm gonna be much more in on Brent Rooker this year because the price is just so much better. That's really what a lot of it comes down to. People are kind of already forgetting that he hit thirty home runs. You know, he could probably do that again there's no reason to think that he can't he only played 137 games if he's able to play 145 150 there's no reason to think he can't hit 30 home runs again and honestly there's not really anybody who's going to take away at bats from Brent Rooker in that outfielder from the DH spot so you know 30 seems like a good number to expect 30 home runs and four steals at pick 300 I I think that you can get behind that a lot of the time so I have really no problem with uh, with taking Brent Rooker I haven't actually drafted him yet but there's no reason to stay away from him at that price Let's talk Seth Brown. Seth Brown is a very interesting one. A lot of formats he will carry uh, first base and outfield eligibility. He was just short on the NFBC, only getting into 17 games at first. But he is an outfielder everywhere, and then you'll get first base in a lot of places as well. I think that he is still a fine player to take kind of as a later asset. Uh, you know, 465 is the ADP. If you just need a little bit of outfield depth, again, he's a draft and hold guy. We've pretty much covered the guys out outside of one dude uh, who are going to be the shallower standard league type of guys. Seth Brown is somebody that I think could get there. he could definitely end up as a 12 team asset. we saw it in 2022. 25 homers and 11 steals. if he's able to get you those 20 homers again and get up over 10 stolen bases a 20 and 10 guy, you can definitely have him on even the you know fairly shallow 12 team rosters. I don't see there being a lot in the way necessarily. Uh, For Seth Brown, I believe he's healthy. I know he's had some problems, but I believe right now, and I'm just going to double-check that, that he is going to be coming into the year healthy. Um, I I believe he is, and if he is, um, then I don't really see much that's going to really hold him back here um, this season. Their projections are kind of low for him. They're projecting only like 118 games, and in those projections, a lot of the systems call for 20 homers and 5 steals, 20 homers and 7 steals. Um, I think that he's actually a pretty good investment where he's going. I've drafted him a couple of times. Uh, You know, uh, there's been you know inconsistent health over the years, but as of right now, and that's why I went back and checked because I thought he was healthy, but I just wanted to double check and make sure. There's some players that kind of give you those kind of scares, right? There's some guys where you're just is he hurt right now? I think he's healthy right now, but you're you're never really sure. Like a Jazz Chisholm type off the top of your head, is Jazz Chisholm healthy right now? Yes, I think so, but I'm going to go double-check again after I say that just because, you know, you've been hurt by some players. And Seth Brown, he's not the type of guy who's going to hurt you so much, but he's only played over 112 games one time. Um, you know, it was 112 this year, 150 last year. That's, those are the peak years, and there haven't been a lot of them. There's only been five seasons total. One of them was 2020, so maybe I'm holding too much against him here, but he has missed some time. That's kind of the only thing at this price that's going to stop him from returning value. It doesn't take much to return value at pick 450. If he's able to be a 20 and 10 guy, even with a 230 average, that's totally within the range of acceptability for one of your reserve round outfielders. I have no problem at all with taking Seth Brown. I think he's a pretty decent investment at, at this price. Let's talk Shea Langoliers. Shea Langoliers, I think, is, again, he's good, but he's probably going to be hindered a lot by this ballpark to some extent. Like he's 22 home runs last year in 135 games without looking at the stat cast, what it would have been in this park versus that park. I feel like he's probably closer to 30 in a, in a lot of different other ballparks. We saw him hit 22 over 92 games in double a he had 19 over 92 games, uh, in triple a in 2022. And then he got called up to the bigs and hit another six in 40 games. So that's 25 homers in 130 games. Maybe I'm over-exaggerating it a little bit. I just think that the park is holding him back to some extent where he might end up being like a 22, 20 home run guy as opposed to 25 or 27 elsewhere. And that's kind of his big thing is power. He doesn't do anything else for you. So you kind of do need to be getting every inch out of that power. He's a 205 hitter, couple of stolen bases. But in this lineup, you're not getting a lot of runs. You're not getting a lot of ribbies. I do worry to some extent about Shea Langelier's in like a one-catcher format. I don't know that I would necessarily be taking him. Um, 245 is the ADP for him right now. I'm just going to see where he is going amongst all catchers. He is currently, at this point, the 19th catcher. So most one-catcher leagues, I guess you aren't really having to make that decision anyway. I don't think he's there. I think that he is definitely more of a two-catcher guy. Like Even if you're in a 15-team one-catcher league, or even potentially 20-team one-catcher league, I just don't think he does a hell of a lot for you. You can find this profile all over the place for catchers. Low batting average, 20 home runs. A lot of them are in better ballparks with better teams around them as well. There's nothing really against him. Again, it's just more the circumstances than it is the actual player. I can wait, you know, based on what the early ADP is telling us. You can wait a couple rounds or even just one round and take Danny Jansen. You can take Ryan Jeffers, Alejandro Kirk, Elias Diaz, Austin Wells, Jake Rogers, Connor Wong. I think I prefer every single one of those players to Shea Langoliers. And again, it's not so much a knock on him as it is on his environment, the surroundings there that are going to stop him from being that uh, that valuable for fantasy. He's fine, I guess, like in a two-catcher league. And yeah, he's of course going to be viable because there's just not that many options but in your one-catcher formats, I'd be staying away from Shay Langoliers. I just don't really see there being that much value there for a guy who is going to be an active drain on the batting average, not giving you much in terms of the counting stats and the home runs. In that ballpark, like, it could be 16 home runs. It could be 21, but it's not going to be, like, 30, which you're kind of hoping for for a guy who is essentially a one-category dude for you. So I'm kind of out on Shea Langoliers at this point. Let's talk about J.J. Blay. I've been a J.J. Blade guy for a long time. I loved watching him in college. I'm not a big prospect college guy, but I did watch him at Vanderbilt. And, you know, the Vanderbilt background is obviously very intriguing. What we saw in the minor leagues early on has not been amazing so far, but he started to kind of figure it out a little bit last year, at least from a fantasy point of view, from a real-life point of view. It was not amazing. He's not a great defensive player. Like, he was still a .1 war in 82 games. It wasn't great, but he gave you 10 homers and 5 steals. He's projected this year over 118 games to give you about 15 homers and 5, 6 steals with a, probably a .215, 220 batting average. It's not good. It's not great at all. But he's being drafted at pick 600, and I think just given the pedigree, given the fact that he's still a young guy who they may just say, okay, you know what, you can finally get a full – season worth of playing time here he played 65 games in 22 played 82 games this past year if he's able to play 120 130 games i could see jj bladay giving you 20 and 10 like we talked about before with seth brown if you're giving me 20 and 10 then i think you're a viable fantasy asset especially in 15 team leagues is he going to be a 10 team or a 12 team guy if he's going 20 and 10 with a you know if he bats 195 again then no probably not but I think in 12 team leagues, he could be a sneaky guy. Not that I'd be drafting him, but somebody to keep an eye on for sure. If he is getting regular playing time, if he's not, I think they're probably going to platoon him. But if he does start to get regular playing time and he's playing five, six days a week at least, I think that he's going to be a valuable 15 team asset. I know that's not appealing to the majority of you guys because most of you are probably playing in 12 team leagues. But even there, I think that you know there is a pathway for JJ Blade to be a viable player in 12 teamers. Do I think it's gonna be he's gonna be a top hundred guy who breaks out this year massively? No. But I think there is, like I said, a potential twenty-ten there. And if he's able to hit two twenty, you know, it's not amazing, but if he's giving you twenty and ten, then you can kind of live with that. If it's below two hundred and it's like seventeen and six, like, no, that's not really gonna cut it. But I think that there's a fine line there where he could potentially be a really valuable asset this year. Not somebody that you're drafting in your shallow leagues, but somebody to keep an eye on. Keep him on the watch list for sure. Let's talk Estuary Ruiz, who is the most expensive uh, Oakland A in early drafts, edging out his teammate Zach Geloff by about seven picks over the last month. Ruiz's big appeal is obviously the speed. He stole 67 bases last year in 132 games. He is an absolute rabbit. He got caught 13 times, so he's not, like, the most efficient. Still pretty efficient. He's, like, an 83% base dealer, which is pretty good. Um, I mean, it's, it's very good. It's just, you know, you don't like to see him losing out on 13 potential opportunities there. But, I mean, when you're playing for Oakland, you kind of have to man- manufacture runs. They know they're going to stink one way or the other, but in order for you to actually, you know, get around the base pass, you kind of got to manufacture that yourself. These guys are not going to be hitting balls in the gap consistently and having 9, 10 run innings. And a guy like Ruiz is a good guy to kind of facilitate things, being able to steal a lot of bases. The problem with him is that he's not a guy who's going to get on base a lot. In fact, his on-base percentage last year was dreadful, 309. He has a 4% walk rate. So that's going to keep him closer to the bottom of the order, and it is going to limit the potential steals he's going to get in that lineup. Whether we like it or not, a guy batting seventh is just not going to steal as many bases as a guy who's batting at the top of the order. Last year he was at the top of the order for a good majority of the year. 81 games he spent at the top of the order. But I think that they are more inclined to bat him somewhere closer to the bottom. Like a lot of those at bats at the top of the order were at the beginning of last year. If you look at the way the year went, if you look at the game log, there's a lot of nines, there's a lot of sevens, there's a lot of sixes, a lot of bottoms of the bottom of the order appearances, and that's not going to help you. You know, he needs to be a guy where he's going, and considering everything else that he does or lack thereof. He needs to absolutely smash stolen bases. He needs to steal 60 again for this price to be worthwhile. If you're taking him in, you know, 126, and a lot of these are, again, this is 15-team leagues. This is like a top 10 pick for you on your team. He better be stealing 60 bases. He better get that batting average up. He better hit a few more homers. Like, there's a lot more he has to do in order to, to, to meet that number for me. Now, if he was just able to steal 70 bases again, yeah, he probably gets there. But is that really sustainable? Are they going to let them steal that many bases again? I, I'm of the opinion, and I've said this a few times over the course of the offseason, that generally we are going to see the success rate of stolen bases go down next year. I think that teams are going to not allow it to happen as much as they did this past year. Uh, I've heard Scott White say it recently. This was the most prolific stolen base season going back to the late 1980s. I think the teams are going to adjust over the course of the offseason, see what they did wrong, see how they can kind of limit that, whatever it is, and these massive numbers, the Cunha hitting 70, Ruiz 67, even the guys who hit 50, you know the Carrolls and the Bobby Witts of the world, they're probably going to lose a few. And a guy like Ruiz, I think, stands to go from 67, even if it's down to 55, that's a massive drop in his value. He had five home runs last year. He drove in 47 runs. He scored 47 runs in 132 games. There's nothing there other than the steals. So if the steals are not operating at the peak, of their powers, which they're not going to be from the six or seven hole of the order, then I think there's a lot to worry about with taking Esther Ruiz in your first eight to 10 picks. I just don't think there's really any way that he returns that value. The only way I can understand it is from a specific team build perspective. If you have taken Jordan Alvarez and Pete Alonso and Bo Bouchette and a bunch of guys who are going to steal like zero to five bases, and you're thinking, holy shit, I have nobody who is going to be able to steal. I need to make up for that. I'm going to take Esther Ruiz here. Then I can understand it. Then I can understand paying the premium for even 50 stolen bases. Because, again, even 50 stolen bases is elite. But does it necessarily equate to eighth-round value in a lot of cases? Specific team builds, I could see it. But for the most part, nine times out of ten, or maybe eight times out of ten, you're going to probably want to be fading that because it's just not a sustainable profile to return fantasy value in this lineup. I mean, there's just so much there, right? But I think Astrid Ruiz, there's just not a lot going on for him. There's not enough going on for him that I could justify this type of draft pick. Those are the fantasy viable guys in the order. Those are the guys that I think in some fashion or another could have some viability. Abraham Toro is projected to be the third baseman. He's projected to give you nine homers and four steals. There's just not a lot there. Daryl Hernase, who I, I swear to God, I don't know who this guy is. He's never played in the big leagues before. He's minor league guy only throughout Baltimore system and Oakland system. He's still very young, and he's had pretty good minor league numbers. He's projected um, to be in the opening day starting lineup. He's projected to be the opening day shortstop. I think most people, if I put a poll out right now on Twitter, would have no idea who this guy is. Decent minor league numbers. Projections are... Fine, they're nothing to write home about, though. Five homers, eight steals, 245 average, well below average WRC-plus numbers. That's kind of it for the lineup. From Noda down to Estrella Ruiz, that's kind of what you're looking at. And of course, you know, if the starters aren't going to have that much value, we don't need to go over the bench situation here. We can start to talk about the pitching situation, which is not the rosiest, especially when it looks like J.P. Sears might get the ball on opening day. Let's start with him. There were times last year... Actually, quite a few times where I really liked JP Sears and I was starting him in my fifteen teamers. I had him on a couple of draft and hold teams, and despite the fact that he lost fourteen games, ended up with a four fifty four ERA. There were stretches where he was really, really good. In the month of July, he had a three zero seven ERA. To end the year, September, October, it was three forty one, and I skipped over the month of May where he had a two ninety four ERA. Now, in the month of August, it was eight twenty five. Month of April, it was six twenty three. June, it was four fifty five. It was very hot and cold with him, but there were certainly times where J.P. Sears was a viable asset. Do I think it's going to continue? Well, I'll kind of preface this by saying I don't think that there's going to be a hell of a lot of value in – or there's not going to be a hell of a lot of fantasy production of the highest level in in the Oakland Athletics rotation. There's not going to be a surprise top 10 pitcher. There's not going to be just some massive shock, 200 strikeouts. It's not going to happen. But I think there's actually some pretty decent values based on what we were talking about earlier, which is draft price. JP Sears goes to pick 387. If you just look at the basic projections, a lot of them are calling for like a 4.2 to 4.3 ERA. The bat is higher than the other projection systems, but generally speaking, you're getting about a 4.2, 4.3 ERA projection with uh, about a 15% strikeout minus walk rate. It's not amazing. But if he's able to give you a 4.3 ERA with what he's projected at about a 1.25 WHIP, at that draft price at 387, again, this is draft and hold depth territory. This is where you are simply looking for somebody who is going to have a role, who is going to be able to not kill you, not somebody who's going to just have a role like a Jordan Lyles type and just kill you every week. But a guy like J.P. Sears who's actually got some decent skills. They're not like he's not amazing but he's not terrible either. He's still fairly young to the point where he could get better. He's 27 years old. Like he's not, you know, I, there's still a lot that can happen to you at 27 years old. Not a lot of big league experience yet. He kind of came up later. I think that he could potentially take a bit of a step forward this year and maybe have a sub 4 ERA. Again, he's not somebody I'm taking in shallow leagues, but it wouldn't at all surprise me to see him be a top 75 pitcher. You know, if he ends up in that kind of range, that's the upside we're dealing with here. There's not a lot to work with in Oakland. But if he's a top 75 pitcher, I wouldn't be terribly shocked by it. He's got decent control. The strikeouts could use a bit of work at 22%, but you can kind of live with it. He's going to kill you in wins. like, And that's going to be a common theme here. They're not going to get a lot of wins, even though he was pretty solid at points last year, started 32 times. He won five games. Something you got to consider. I mean, wins are also very random, but he's not going to give you a lot of wins. Like he, like Let's be honest. Maybe he gives you 10 or 11 if he gets lucky, but it's not something that you can really expect. The projections have him from anywhere from 7 to 9. Again, if he gets to 10, that'd be a great thing. And I think that you know he could potentially be uh, a guy that you're starting in 15-teamers again, like he was last year at certain points. But certainly for you 12-team, 10-team players, there's not a hell of a lot you can do with J.P. Sears, unfortunately. Uh, he's just not going to be somebody that's going to be able to cut it Let's talk Paul Blackburn. Paul Blackburn is not that exciting. Like, there's not a hell of a lot there. The strikeouts last year were pretty solid. He's been a guy for his career who is always under 20%. Got it up to 22.4. The walks also did go up a little bit. Now, the control had been not something we would had to worry about with him. Between 5 and 7% on the walk rates usually. Last year was at 9.3%. The opposing batting average was 280 and his whip was 154. It was a bad year. Now he did also have an incredibly high BABIP of 350, but I don't really think that really matters so much. I don't think we're coming from a position of a lot of like a ton of skill. I think he's okay, but we're not talking about a guy who has great stuff. We're not talking about a, a lot of swing and miss in the profile. The wins are going to be limited. Everything is kind of going to be limited in this ballpark. The projections for him win-wise. Zips has him for five wins, The projection of five wins. Like with JP Sears, at least most of them are for eight. With Blackburn, it's five. And maybe he does end up seven or eight, but there's not a lot of wiggle room there uh, for value. The whips are always bad. The ERAs, like best case scenario, is probably 4.3, 4.2. If it's like a perfect world for Paul Blackburn. Again, he's just not somebody I think you can really have that much interest in. If it's a draft and hold, pick 555. I, I, I'm i going to say, like, sure, if you want, but I feel like there's better options. You know There are going to be better options available than Paul Blackburn. We don't need to spend so much time on him. The next two guys we have talked about recently because they were in the news recently um, because of recently joining the A's, Alex Wood. He was acquired, not acquired, the other guy was acquired. Alex Wood actually went there willingly. <laughs> he, acqu- uh, he agreed to a contract of one year, $8.5 million for this year. I think if they use him as a starter, which they will, um, then we're fine. You know, he was used out of the pen 17 times last year, which is not conducive to success for Alex Wood. He is a starting pitcher, and it, he, he sucked. Like, he had a terrible season. It was bad on the surface at a 433 ERA, and the supporting metrics were even worse. So there's not a lot there in terms of what he did as a reliever. You get him back in the starting rotation, and I feel like we'll see more of the typical Alex Wood, which is like a league average type of pitcher, Again, wins are not going to be great, but he can give you decent strikeouts. He's been a 23, 25% guy a lot of his career. I think he can give you like 21 or 22% at least. At that point, I think you're you're doing all right. Like if he's able to give you a 20, 20% strikeout rate with a 7% walk rate, that's probably gonna be able to cut it for Alex Wood. You're not paying up for him. 638 is the price. You don't need miracles there. You just kind of need, like, for that price and for what your purposes are, just a few good weeks throughout the season for that to really be worth it. And I think that we can see that. Even if it's not going to necessarily be massive volume, the last three years are 138, 130, and 97. I think while he's out there, especially, you know, good pitcher's ballpark, which does impact all these guys, it's a good park to pitch in. I think that Alex Wood could be all right. And I think especially at the price, I'd be willing to take a chance on him. Ross Stripling, I think, is also probably worth it at the price. I mean, it's still going to settle in a little bit here. We don't really know where they'll finish up exactly, uh, but 550 is where he is right now. We have to see, of course, because there are still drafts that are taking place. If it's a slow draft, we we don't know, um, you know, if they're finished up yet or if they haven't finished up yet. There's a lot of them haven't, and probably a lot of them were started while Stripling was. Being traded and while Alex would before he had signed, um, and we're kind of waiting to see that data kind of get caught up and see exactly what's going to happen. Are they going to move up drastically or not? Signing with Oakland, I can't imagine they move up too drastically, and that will make them still good values in the mid 500s and 600s. Ross Stripling as a starter, we've seen him have very successful seasons as a starter. San Francisco, I don't know what they were thinking last year, but they used both him and Shamaniah in these weird hybrid roles that didn't work for either of them. And we saw them take steps back. Stripling still had really good control, 4.2% walk rate. You know, I think it's really just about keeping him in the rotation and getting him those regular reps as a starter, as opposed to doing this weird back and forth. I think that's going to be a key for him and Wood, and there's nobody standing in the way of either of them. So they both should be able to to pretty easily I think beat their ADPs, not to say they're going to be amazing values, but they should be decent enough values for you draft and hold players where Alex Wood and Ross Stripling should be considered uh, you know, later in your queue. I'm not pushing them up. It's not like, oh, they're, they've are they signed, now we got to push them up 100 picks like you do with some players. Push them up a little bit maybe, but I think where they're going is generally where they're going to go, and you can be all right with that because there's probably a lot of good value there. Uh, Luis Medina I don't see as somebody that you really need to take – a lot in here i mean there's just i don't think gonna be a lot in terms of strikeouts for him the era is the worst projected era of anybody in this rotation and if you heard the way i just talked the last 10 minutes or so i'm not really massive on any of these guys luis medina would definitely be the bottom of my list and again i'm not even big on him uh at all so let's move into the pen we don't need to spend any more time talking about guys that don't have any value for fantasy let's talk about mason miller I adore Mason Miller, and there's been talk that he could potentially be the closer here in Oakland, which would make me very happy. I love Mason Miller. But we've also lost our damn minds in the fantasy community here because he is being taken a lot of the time in the top 200 picks. Over the last month, 210 ADP with a 184 minimum and a more reasonable 274 maximum. There's a few things with Mason Miller. The health is not really there, but as a reliever, you don't need it to be as much, which is which is fine. But they haven't announced that he is going to even be the full-time closer yet. They said he's going to have a chance to compete for the job. A chance to compete for the job is not exactly anything that's set in stone here. Maybe he ends up as the closer. Maybe he gets hurt. Maybe they try him as a starter again, which I think they'd be crazy to not try him as a starter again. Barely any experience at all in the major leagues. We're talking 33 innings last year. Even in the minor leagues, we're talking about like 30 innings, 40 innings. I don't I don't understand giving up on a guy at this age as a starter and saying, yep, you're 24 and you're going to be relegated to bullpen duties for the rest of your career. I just don't understand it for a guy with this kind of talent. The talent is through the roof with Mason Miller. The strikeout rates that he's shown throughout the minors are stupid. It's just a matter of getting that control down. 11.5% walk rate last year in a fairly small sample size. That's not going to cut it. He's got to get that below 10, but the strikeouts are there. The good ballpark is there. Like the projections are are incredible for him. Steamer hasn't projected for a, an ERA below three. The highest ERA projection is from the bat and that's three five four. and they're all calling for above thirty percent strikeout rate. Every system except for ATC, which is kind of interesting, I don't really understand this. every other system is calling for a sub ten percent K rate. I guess Ariel adjusted something personally with the ATC for him. Because it's an aggregate, so I don't know how the aggregate projection would be higher than the other ones. I don't understand that one. But pretty much every system has been projected for a sub-10 walk rate with a 30-plus percent K rate. I understand the excitement, but taking them in the top 200 – uh, I don't know. Like we don't know for sure if he's even going to have this role, if he's going to keep it, uh, if he's going to be healthy. Like we, don't, there's a lot of unknowns to be using a top 200 pick on a fairly unproven closer, potential closer for Oakland. I mean, there's just a lot of question marks there, and one of them is Lucas Erceg. I've heard a lot of people talk very highly of Lucas Erceg, and I think that there's a chance that he gets a cha- uh, he gets a shot at closing. It might not be right out of the gate, but again, massive strikeouts. The walk rate is is horrific but that's kind of par for the course with you know the back end of Oakland's pen you're not going to get a lot of guys who are pinpoint accurate I think that he gets a chance to close though based on what I have heard based on what we're seeing here even in the projections and the projections for saves are going to go all over the place we don't really know what's going to happen but he's projected for between five and seven saves actually uh, Zips has him for eight saves so Again, that can all get thrown away in the first week of spring training if they say, yeah, we're going with this guy. He's our closer. Then it's probably not going to be a committee type. But as of right now, Urseg is in that conversation. Uh, Danny Jimenez had a very good season last year. It wasn't perfect by any means, but, you know, 347 ERA. Again, massive walk rate, but he had a 347 ERA. The supporting metrics were, some of them said it was kind of deserved. Some of them, like Sierra, were not a big fan of his, but... My point is more so than to highlight these other options, the fact that there are other options. There are other players who are going to potentially get a chance there to close. If you're taking Mason Miller after pick 200 and saying, look at me, I just got a top five closer in the league, massive strikeouts, blah, blah, blah. You might, but it's very far from secured at this point that he's going to actually have that value. He could potentially, but as of right now, he doesn't make a lot of sense as a top 200 pick. He just doesn't. There's a lot of closers you can kind of wait on. You don't have to wait to this extent to get, you know, potentially a guy who's platooning the role in Oakland. And they're splitting up, you know, 26 saves three ways. And at that point, what are we talking about? So I think that there are safer investments than Mason Miller, despite the fact that I adore Mason Miller. Like, go look at my tweets. Go search his name in my tweets. My most downloaded, most viewed podcast I did for a very long time was with Nick Pollock last year. When we were debuting, or when Mason Miller was debuting, and we were watching it live, and Nick was commenting on it, that was, like, and it was just both of us going on and on about how much we loved Mason Miller and how much we thought he was really going to be amazing. I still think he is, potentially, if they use him as a starter. Like, I don't want to see him relegated to the pen long-term, and maybe it gets there, but it shouldn't get there at 24. As He, he is not even, uh, he did turn 25, sorry, so he's 25. You should not be relegating... A guy with this kind of talent to the pen at 25, in my opinion. Let's hope he gets back into the starting rotation at some point because they are going to need some help, as is this entire team at this point. The only other guy is Ken Waldachuk, and Ken Waldachuk is going to miss the start of the season. He had uh, elbow procedure in the offseason, and he's only expected to come back somewhere in the middle of the year from what I've heard. He's going to miss a couple of months, I think, and honestly what we saw from him last year was straight – garbage it was 20% strikeout rate 11% walk rate a 156 whip it was a 536 uh, ERA let's get out of here let's wrap this one up before we go into the depths of depression here for Oakland Athletics fans I I feel for you guys I I really feel for you your owner has let you down it's not going to be a competitive team it's not even going to be close but uh, I think there are some exciting players still that you can kind of look forward to the future to some extent you know Geloff is 24, Noda's 27, Lankeliers is 26, Ruiz is 25, Blade is 26. There's still room here for, for amazing things to happen down the line. I just I just feel for the way that this has kind of transpired for you guys in Oakland, it's not fair. You guys don't deserve it. And I'm sorry that I have to talk about your team in such a manner because it's not I don't like to pile on. I just gotta tell you what it is. Uh, It's not rosy. It's not a rosy outlook, but you guys already knew that. I hope you got something out of this show one way or the other, breaking it down here. We are going to talk New York Yankees tomorrow with Chris Torres from the Triple Play Fantasy Baseball Beat podcast. And then the episode you guys will see on Wednesday will be with Sam Worshing of the Dynasty Guru Palazzo podcast, contributes a few different places. And we're going to talk Seattle Mariners. The day after will be Michael Govier and the Detroit Tigers. And then, of course, like I said, episode 500 on Friday – with Eno and Nick, if you guys got any questions about anything, go to Joe Orico ninety nine on Twitter. You can send me a message; the DMs are open. If you want to talk about baseball, ask about the show, or whatever's going on, uh, those DMs are always open. I'd please ask you guys go to Ethos Fantasy BB. Leave us a follow over there, and if you haven't done so already. Rate and review the show. Uh, It's been a really booming time for the show. A lot of ratings and reviews, a lot of new downloads coming in. You guys can help keep that going by just taking a few seconds, scrolling down, hitting that five-star button, leaving a couple of kind words if you feel so kind uh, today. That would be very much appreciated by yours truly. But I will leave you there. Again, Yankees tomorrow. we are talking about them stinking Yanks with our good friend Chris Torres. But until then, take care, everybody. Have a great night. We'll see you tomorrow.